Let's pray together. Lord, we, we thank you for this day. Uh, we thank you for this opportunity to be together uh, in all the generations. And Lord, we, we pray as much for what's going on downstairs now with our children as we do for what's going on uh, up here. That We pray that it's a blessed time uh, in which we all grow in faith. And we all grow in, in knowledge of you. And we all uh, grow in, in our ability to, to share you. And so, Lord, just uh, we pray that your Holy Spirit would come and speak as, as mightily to our children as it speaks to us as adults. Well, Lord, come now as we share your word. Uh, just inspire the reading uh, and the proclamation of your word. Inspire us to, to apply it to our daily living. Uh, we ask this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Uh, after taking some time in December to, to kind of look at Advent themes, and then in January we wanted to focus on the three circles training, I want to get back into the Gospel of John a little, a little and we're going we're gonna to pick it up here in a minute uh, at verse 18. But before I read the text, uh, let me remind you where we've been, uh, because it's, it's been a while uh, now since we looked at the Gospel of John. In the first chapter, we considered the great uh, theological subject of the incarnation, that God became flesh in Jesus. We also heard the testimony of John the Baptist uh, regarding Jesus, and we saw Jesus calling his first disciples. In the second chapter, we, we saw the first miracle of Jesus at the Cana wedding, uh, and we also saw the very first time that Jesus cleansed the temple. In John chapter 3, we, we focused on uh, the Pharisee Nicodemus and how he met Jesus at night, and, and Jesus began to tell him and to tell us, you must be born again, you must be regenerated. We were also reminded of John the Baptist's great statement when he said, uh, he must increase and I must decrease. John chapter 4 gave us Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman. And then at the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5, we had Jesus healing the official son. And then we also had the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda or the pool of Bethsaida. And this began the tension between Jesus and the Pharisees. Because not only did Jesus heal on the Sabbath, but he equated himself as being equal with God. And that's where we're going to pick it up today in, in John chapter 5, verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own son, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but He has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father 
who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Thanks be to God for his holy word. Amen. Well, remember again that uh, last time when we studied John's gospel, we looked at Jesus healing the man, uh, uh, the official son, at the end of John chapter 4. And at the beginning of John chapter 5, we considered how Jesus healed a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. But instead of finding great joy in that miracle, all the Jewish leaders could focus on was that Jesus performed that miracle on the Sabbath. And, and in, their mind, uh, in their minds, he had broken the Sabbath law. So verse 18, we read, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You see, in their mind, it was bad enough that Jesus healed on the Sabbath, but now, now he had the audacity to say that he was equal with God which in their minds was pure blasphemy. But Jesus wasn't finished. Uh, he had a lot more to say about his equality with God. First, he says, in effect, I I'm equal with God in my actions. Verses 19 and 20 again. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son, and He shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him, so that you may marvel. Jesus said, truly, truly, or verily, verily, which means, I tell you the truth. I'm about to tell you something important. Stop and listen. What the Father does he said, I, the Son, will I do likewise. It was a clear declaration of Jesus' divinity that, that only someone equal to the Father could do all that the Father does. This was, again, pure blasphemy to the Jewish leaders. Obviously, it wasn't time for Jesus' death because I'm telling you, otherwise, they would have picked up stones right there in that moment and they would have stoned him to death. It was blasphemy to them that Jesus would equate himself to God, but that's exactly what he was doing. Some of you surely recall talk show host Phil Donahue. And in his best-selling autobiography, he explained why he left the Christian faith. He wrote, if, the, if God the Father is so all-loving, why didn't He come down and go to Calvary? Then Jesus could have said, this is my Father in whom I am well pleased. How could an all-knowing, all-loving God allow His Son to be murdered on a cross in order that He might redeem my sins? Well, obviously... Mr. Donahue didn't know the Bible very well. 
Because that's exactly what God did as he came down and he did indeed go to Calvary. Jesus' claim of equality makes it clear that the Father shared in Jesus' sacrifice and his pain and his love. The Father absolutely loves his Father. Uh, The Father absolutely loves his Son. That's why he says in verse 20, the Father loves the Son and he shows himself all that he himself is doing. And interesting, the word love here is the word phileo, which we think of as brotherly love, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. But it means a personal affection. It means a personal attachment. It it talks about the personal affection that we feel within our families. And here, of course, it's speaking of the father's personal love for his son. And further, the tense of the verb indicates the continual, never-ending, eternal love of the Father for the Son. The Father loves the Son, and so they have equality in their actions, and God demonstrates His love for the Son by showing the, love, the Son exactly what He's doing and exactly what He should do. He's showing the Son all that's going on. You see, the Pharisees were condemning Jesus for healing on the Sabbath, but they were attempting to condemn God himself, the very one who had created the Sabbath in the first place. Jesus is equal to the Father. And he healed on the Sabbath because that's exactly what the Father would have done in that situation. For Jesus was God with us. And I want to skip ahead in our text just a little this morning because I want to save the best news uh, for the end today. But first, we got to consider some, some somber news. Jesus not only claimed equality with God in his actions, but he claimed equality with God in his judgment. In fact, he indicates that God has turned the judgment over to him. Verses 22 to 23. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. This verse attests to Jesus' deity and his equality with God. Because their wills are in perfect harmony, all judgment can be given to Christ. For his judgment will, in fact, be God's judgment. John MacArthur writes, Although judgment was not the primary purpose of Christ's first coming to earth, it remains the inescapable final result of rejecting the salvation he offers. Beloved, we don't like to hear this, but it's very clear from Scripture that Jesus will return in judgment. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 to 10. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might 
when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. The reason why we've been doing the three circles and learning ways of sharing our faith is we don't want people to go to destruction because God doesn't want people to go to, dest to destruction. But it's clear from the Scriptures. It's tough to hear. But part of what makes Jesus equal with God is His ability to judge the world as God would judge the world. But fortunately for us, that's not the end of the story. That there's good news. Jesus claimed equality with God in his actions. He claimed equality with God in his judgment. But here's the good news. Jesus claimed equality with God in his power. And here he, he's claiming specifically the power to give life. Verse 21. Whereas the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Jesus is equal with the Father. And that's why, beloved, He can give us life. That's why He can give us life abundant. And that's why He can give us life eternal. I told you last week about bombing out on my very first test in college. Chemistry 101. Made a possible 36 out of a, 36 out of a possible 100 on my very first college test. And I struggled that entire first semester so much so that, uh, as I told some of you last week, that my parents got one of those letters saying, your son's in academic trouble. He's not going to make it if he doesn't tighten up. First semester of college, I did not handle my newfound freedom very well. I did not apply myself, that was clear. So as spring semester came and those fellows came to the dorm and they shared the gospel with me, they found a very broken young man at that point. But here's the good news. When I trusted in Jesus, not only did I receive eternal life, but I began to receive a new life. That a new person was born in those moments. Faith in Christ began to change me, and, and in the spiritual disciplines of praying and reading Scripture and studying Scripture with other guys, I began to realize that I needed that same discipline in the rest of my life. I needed it in my academic studies as well. I wound up graduating with honors in my major and was inducted to a, a National Honor Society for Industrial Engineers. Does it always happen that way? No, of course not. But there, and there's not a magic formula, you know, that you trust in Jesus and you automatically get good grades and, and everything goes well and, and your kids do well and you have a nice home. I'm not saying that. In my case, I had to put in some sweat equity. I had to crack the books. I had to get discipline. And not everyone has a conversion experience like me. We, we all come to Christ in different ways. But here's the point. When we trust in Christ, we have new life. We have new life. We are regenerated. We are born again. 
And while that new birth is a bit of a mystery, the process is simple. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, or emphatically, I'm telling you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Trusting in Christ, trusting in what God has done, believing in his salvation in Jesus gives us new life now and new life for all eternity. Is it always perfect? No, that's not what I'm suggesting. But a sign that we've come to Christ is that we've got a new life. That we're empowered now to live a new life. Notice that text doesn't say those who who hear my word and, and, and follow it, they might have life. It says they have life. Period. They have life. Jesus is equal with the Father in His actions. He's equal to the Father in His judgment. He's equal to the Father in His ability to give you and I life. And there are at least two implications of this, of this truth. Um, and we find those implications, I think, in the closing verses. Verse 23 again. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. We live in a pluralistic world. And we live in a world where many people try to tell us that all religions are the same. That all worship the same God. Well, to that claim, verse 23 is a bombshell. You want to know if another religion is legitimate? And is it God-honoring? The test is, does it honor the Jesus for who He really is? Does it honor Jesus as the Son of God, the Messiah, the crucified and risen Savior? Does it honor Jesus as the Lord of the universe and the judge of all people? Because if a religion or an individual does not honor Jesus, they do not honor God. Jesus said it very plainly in this verse. Beloved, either He is who He says He is or He's not. Does it honor God? Do they honor Jesus? And then, The other implication is the one we've been talking about all along, and that's salvation, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He no longer comes into judgment, but he's passed, or she has passed from death to life. Paul in Romans 10, 9 put it this way, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If we come to trust Christ, to trust God and and the salvation He's given us in Jesus, we not only will have eternal life, we have eternal life. We, We not only will not come into the judgment of condemnation, we've already passed through it. We've passed from death to life. John Piper writes it this way, Jesus has become the judgment for us. When we are united to Him by faith, His death becomes our death. His crucifixion becomes our crucifixion. 
His curse on the cross, our curse on the cross. And His resurrection, our resurrection. We have already, if we've trusted in Christ, passed from death to life. Today we come to the table as a visible reminder of Christ's death and crucifixion, His curse on the cross, and ultimately His resurrection. And we remember His death and His resurrection until He comes again in glory. And in remembering, we praise Him for the life that He gives. So I want to ask you this morning, if you trust in Christ to come remembering and celebrating that though Jesus was equal with God in every way, think about this, He was equal with God in every way. He entered our lives. And He died our death. And He was raised on the third day so that you and I might live. And if you've never trusted in Christ, I urge you to do so this very day and to pass from death to life. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, You are one with the Father. You are equal in actions and judgment and the ability to give life. You're equal in every way. And maybe I haven't explained it so well today, but we trust that you are equal and we praise you. We worship you. We seek to live into this new life that you've given us. But Lord, we fall short. And we know that without a doubt that, that we, we need the forgiveness. We need the forgiveness that this table represents. And so we thank you for dying the death we deserve so that we might live the new and eternal life you made sure in your resurrection. And so now, Lord, as we set aside this table and this meal as holy unto you, we pray the words of the great thanksgiving. And we pray it is truly right and our greatest joy to give you thanks and praise. For out of your great love for the world, you sent your only Son to be one of us, to redeem us, and to heal our brokenness. Therefore, remembering your gracious acts in Jesus Christ, we take from your creation this bread and this cup, and we joyfully celebrate Christ dying and rising as we await the day of his coming. With thanksgiving, we offer our very selves to you, to be a living and holy sacrifice dedicated to your service. Oh, gracious God, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and upon these gifts of bread and grape juice, that the bread we break 
and the cup we bless may be the communion of the body and the blood of Christ. Through Christ, with Christ, in Christ, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory and honor are yours, Almighty Father, now and forevermore. Amen. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. God bless you.